0: Nick Culbertson is the CEO and co-founder of ProTennis, the number one healthcare compliance analytics platform. The company reduces risk and ensures patient trust. Nick attended the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine where he and co-founder Robert Lord saw firsthand how electronic medical records are used to improve patient care and share data more efficiently. They also saw that electronic medical records created a whole new slate of serious security and privacy concerns. In 2014, Nick and Robert developed the initial prototype and algorithms that launched ProTennis, fulfilling a critical need to better protect patient data in electronic health records. Earlier in his career, Nick served for eight years in the US Army, completed his service as a highly decorated special forces operator, a Green Beret. Additionally, Nick spent four years as a biomedical researcher at Johns Hopkins University. He holds a bachelor's degree from Hopkins University in cellular biology and helps run the sixth branch, a veteran-led community service organization in East Baltimore. Nick, welcome to Frontline Founders, the podcast mini series that showcases military veterans who have gone on to success as founders and builders of technology companies.
1: Thanks, Renny. It's great to be chatting again.
0: Nick, let's start off. Could you tell us what do you do today as the CEO of Pro Tennis, in your own words. We
1: are bringing AI and automation to healthcare compliance. Um, You talk about AI and healthcare a lot with population health and precision medicine. But what's really interesting with uh, the back office of hospital compliance is there's a lot of structured data, a lot of clear policies, and while AI and healthcare has a, a bit of time to mature and develop, we're able to deliver over 90% accuracy to really solve a critical need for hospital systems
0: in reducing risk uh, overall. That's, that's, that's terrific. And, and, and like you said, AI is, is n- no stranger to improving outcomes in in healthcare writ large but it seems like you you and your co-founder identified a real opportunity now 7 years ago and have been building upon it
1: yeah it was it was quite by accident we were actually working on the uh, outcome side, like you just mentioned with uh, with the goal of being able to improve patient workflows and improve patient care, but it was the anomalies in the workflow. Uh, the out, outliers that turned out to be uh, individuals that were committing fraud or, or putting patients and their data at risk that really started to uh, uh, present themselves as the opportunity.
0: We're really excited to to dig deep into ProTennis. what the last seven years have been, like where you're going in the future with the company. Before we get to that, a big purpose of of frontline founders is is to talk about military veterans who have gone on to success as as founders and builders of technology companies. So we we will look forward to talking about your actual military service and and then going into the the time at Tennis. So, Nick, could, could you talk to us briefly about... Um, wh- where you grew up and, and briefly how that, that call to serve, how the decision to join to join the military happened for you personally.
1: Of course, uh, I've had a very circuitous uh, uh, adult life and a very circuitous uh, uh, childhood as well. I, I went to elementary in uh, New England, outside of Boston. Uh, I went to middle school in Colorado, high school in Indiana, the Midwest. And came to Baltimore for college at Johns Hopkins. And um, uh, unfortunately, my father passed away uh, right, right when I started. And so on top of the uh, emotional loss, I had to find a way to pay for school. And so that was right after 9-11. And there were a ton of really um, uh, significant opportunities in joining the military, not just for an opportunity to serve, but also to pay for school. So that was my number one uh, motivation at the time.
0: So, so in, in that case, are you saying you joined a ROTC unit in order to, to pay for undergrad? I tried to join a ROTC unit, but uh, was already, you know, middle of the semester.
1: So wasn't able to get a scholarship out of it. Uh, and so I ended up joining um, a reserve unit at, inside of uh, Maryland on Fort Meade, became a medic first. And uh, my first trip overseas was to Hawaii. And I worked at a... a uh, Tripler, the hospital system in in Hawaii, um, really interesting, you know, most people, uh, their first experience is deployed in Iraq, Afghanistan, but uh, I had to work in an operating room for a couple months uh, in, in Hawaii, which is great. Came back and realized that um, just by joining the reserves, I, wasn't, I didn't have access to uh, the GI Bill, and so needed to do more training, needed to do more deployments. And so I found an opportunity to become uh, a Green Beret through the National Guard in Maryland. There's a unit right above Baltimore. And uh, that allowed me to not only become a Green Beret, but also become a Green Beret medic, um, which uh, was was supportive of my long-term goal to be a physician and, and researcher. So uh, it fit into um, kind of like my long-term aspirations and also helped me get access to the GI Bill. And once I got the training, uh, I was in good shape to then go back and finish school, except the deployment tempo uh, for special, special operations is pretty high. So I ended up spreading my undergraduate career across 10 years, seven semesters across 10 years.
0: Is that right? Before I finally have graduated. It? Okay. Ten-year undergraduate time because of the deployments with the Special Forces group. What What years are we – you mentioned – shortly after 911 you you arrived at at Hopkins as an undergrad or or something like that what years are are we talking about when you were both a special forces um you, you were you're were a member of that special forces team and also working uh, bit by bit on your undergrad
1: so i enlisted in 2004 and graduated in 2012 um so a couple I guess, three years after 9-11. Um, and then 2012 was when I got out of the military and actually got into med school. So it was a um, pretty big transition for me.
0: And, and, and could you talk briefly about the, some of the, the deployments that you, that you did while you were in the Army, where those took you, and, and whether your role was, was as a medic throughout, or whether that role transitioned over time? So I, uh, my primary specialty
1: was a Greenbury medic. Uh, I was the junior, I started out as the junior medic on our team, had a really great mentor, um, that I worked with also a Baltimore native. Um, um, so got very close to him. Uh, most of the, all the combat deployments I did were in Afghanistan. Um, and so spent a number of, uh, collective months there, um, throughout the country and really enjoyed my experience. Uh, I later trained in, um, specializing in human intelligence. So I helped my team run uh, an informant network, gathering intelligence from local communities and um, trying to build actual opportunities based off the, the information we
0: gathered from our sources. And that that designation of, of the the human or human intelligence side that that you got in, in addition to the time as a medic, did that make you think as you were Transitioning away from the military, that there might be, that there might be a, a different career path to take, or were you pretty certain that it was going to be healthcare at the time? Uh, thinking about as a as a medical doctor.
1: So my goal all along was to do medicine and research. I, I throughout undergrad and between active service trips. I, w- I was working in a research lab. I, I specialized in cellular um, engineering, uh, metabolic engineering. Um, I wanted to get into um, uh, system processes of uh, cellular growth and um, synthetic biology. Uh, when my goal originally was to get into an MD-PhD program, I was fortunate to get a Ride at Hopkins and wanted to use that and eventually apply to a PhD program, uh, which ultimately led in a, um, we'll get to, I guess, in a minute, how, how I got to pretend us. But uh, what was really interesting about um, human intelligence is just the, uh, I don't know the right way to say it, the scientific rigor of it, the um, the process of gathering really small data points. Uh, it's the opposite of big data. Instead of having a like, tremendous amount of wealth of information you have to tease apart, you have two or three points. And the way that you know the credibility of those two or three points is how much uh, rigor you put through vetting uh, the sources and building a reputation with them. And so it's uh, it's work doing a lot with a little. Uh, and that's a lot of the, the Green Beret mentality is, is working in austere environments, limited resources. And it makes for problem solving um, uh, really uh, makes it really challenging. Uh, but it's also really fulfilling when you're able to kind of piece together the uh,
0: puzzle, which I think is something that uh, I'm always driven towards. That 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 that's terrific. And that putting putting together the puzzle pieces is, is something that I believe a, a lot of the post 9-11 era veterans have been. Forced into whether their specialty was was human intelligence or whatever it was in in the last twenty years of counterinsurgency um, counterterror missions, uh, the, the, there, there's there's been a lot there's been a lot of that, and you really you really hit on a, a couple of these skill sets. You know, do, doing a lot with a little adapting that were true about your your military career that then also led into your, your, your time, you know, creating a company and, 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 and building a very successful company over the last few years. L- last question before we, we get into why you started Pro Tennis and, and how that all happened is, could, could you reflect for, for a minute here, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be other opportunities throughout the interview, but opportunities while you served – that set you up from entrepreneurship. I mean, you, you, your time as a medic and a, and a human um, operator, um, you know, in Afghanistan multiple times. What one could imagine that that just the sheer grit, determination, doing a lot with a little that that you had um, c- certainly had an impact on on your ability to uh, to start and grow a company and, and go through the ups and downs of that. But you know, could, could you talk about maybe leadership, creativity, flexibility, endurance? What 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 were some of the things in particular that you did take away from your time in the military that that enabled you to you know i think it's fair to say now su- succeed right 7 years and and uh you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of positive outcomes for for uh for for customers later so so from your military time things that were particularly impactful that enabled you to to really uh, perform well as a founder of a tech company?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, I think there's two major benefits I really appreciate from my my military experience. The first being, um, you know, to become a, a Green Beret, it takes a lot of heart. It takes a lot of passion. It takes a lot of uh, endurance, as you mentioned. So understanding like what your body is capable of, what your mind is capable of by really pushing yourself that far, I think it makes future challenges a lot easier. Um, knowing that you've been through rough circumstances, knowing that you've seen yourself um, adapt and overcome, I think is is really important. And uh, for folks who have maybe not had an opportunity to put themselves out there or take risk, um, you know, having that kind of experience really sets you up and it makes it a lot easier to take risk in the future. So that's that's one aspect. The other thing that I really appreciate I think that when people think of the military, they think of hierarchy, do what you're told, following orders. And I think any combat veteran, and especially folks from the special operations community, understands that uh, as hierarchical as the military is, it's really about teams and solving problems. And that means thinking outside of the box there's no rule book necessarily on how to solve a problem, just like there's no rule book on how to start your company. Uh, you need to figure out what works, what makes sense, what the right path is, what your options are available. And there's, you know, there's a whole process of military decision-making, um, that that can help support that. But the reality is, is, uh, you have what you got operator and, and you need to make it happen. And so I, I think, um, while my ultimate goal is to become a researcher, I found out that, uh, one, it's a lot easier to raise capital than it is to get research funding. Uh, and certainly, it's a lot easier to make progress when you're not trying to publish all the time. Um, but but more importantly, is I feel like I was able to combine um, my experience from special operations and my passion for research into this basically R&D-type startup, um, working with AI and solving problems. And had no interest in being an entrepreneur or a business owner uh, to any extent, but stumbled upon this, this opportunity and feel like I found my dream job. So I, I think it's, um, it's been a great path. And I really appreciate the opportunities I had in the military to set me up for success here.
0: That That's terrific. And great, great points that entrepreneurship and being forward deployed, the, there's no rule book. You have to figure it out. Often I Hear from veterans that the the misconception about the impact or not of hierarchy in the military is something that that many people assume, uh, but but the realities of, of of operating on the ground are are far different when when it when it comes down to it. So th- thank you for sharing that, Nick. Let's let's transition into in into back into pro tennis. So. I, I, I wonder how the the the, the origin story. Um, I mean, you and I have talked about it a, a, a bit years ago, and you've you've alluded to stumbling into this. Your your deep interest in in research and R and D and and grant funding versus versus venture funding. Uh, one maybe being easier than the other. It turns out. Why start pro tennis and? and I think the circumstances of, of you starting it were it was a it was a very big decision to leave what you were then doing to start pro tennis. So could could you talk to us about why you actually started the company, that decision making process and a little bit about the early days at the company?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, I think the reason um, that I wanted to go to Hopkins was because it's such a research focused institution and every med student is required to do research projects their first summer I was doing research projects before that and uh, full-time over the summer. And then even into the second year, I was still working on a a number of projects. Um, Most of them focused on, um, you know, the the main areas that I knew well, which was um, um, cellular biology. But uh, I was also talking to uh, a a very dear friend that I um, came to know really well in med school. We met on the trail to med school and, both got in the same program. But my friend, Robert Lord, had a very non-traditional background like myself, very different, but, but very similar. He worked at a hedge fund, Bridgewater, for a number of years, and so worked with a number of analytical tools to study financial systems. He came into healthcare wanting to do research around financial models, in uh, the ICU, and, and improving um, hospital outcomes, very similar to um, kind of how I saw medicine as, as a means to really study bigger systems. And we just wanted to work on our, on a project together. Uh, we had a, we had our own individual projects that we we're working on and we felt like, well, this could be fun. We could just do something together, combining um, the experiences we have. And so he, I had exposure to using analytical tools for, for information systems. He had exposure to analytical tools for financial systems. And we looked at healthcare and we felt like, you know, anyone who comes from an outside industry in the healthcare and even people in healthcare will tell you um, healthcare technologies, 10 20 years behind other industries. And so with the advent of electronic medical records, which is relatively novel, we were looking at the data architecture and thinking, it's really hard to understand workflows based on how it's structured. And it's ideal for pulling information on individual patients. It's ideal for studying populations, but it's not ideal for studying workflows. And so can we structure this data in a way that would be interesting to to study these workflows? And originally our intent was, Kind of a small project. We just wanted to improve education around informed consent. We wanted to identify mm-hmm. patients earlier in a pathway, how to um, uh, be able to predict that they needed an education and then provide that education sooner. And so we came up with a model where we built profiles on patients using uh, a medical record information like what's your diagnosis, what are your encounters, what are your procedures, what medications do you take. We then would build profiles on employees who would be accessing the records using HR data, like what's your title, your role, your specialty, Uh, and then we would weave these profile sets together using system access logs that would tell us what types of employees were accessing what profiles of patients and in what order along the care continuum. And so our goal was to be able to establish these profiles or these patterns, like you know pre-op versus post-op, inpatient versus outpatient, and then be able to pinpoint the patients who needed this education and see if we could have certain employees provide that education early in the care pathway. What was really interesting about this process was that not only could we see the informed consent pathway, but we could see almost any pathway in healthcare hmm. uh, with this, this structure. And not only could we see all these different patterns throughout healthcare, we could see anomalies in these patterns, and so we showed it to administrators and they said, well, I'll take a step back. First, we applied for a research grant, a very small research grant to support this work and got rejected. Uh, it's like a $5,000 grant and, and $5,500. It was really small and we got rejected. They said, no, it's not, not, not a good project. We showed our model to administrators and we're really fortunate to be able to talk to some really smart um, executives at Hopkins that looked at the model and said, Well, that's great about this pattern. Tell me about the anomalies. I want to know about mm. those employees that are doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. And they looked at it and they said, Yeah, this is fraud, um, hmm. state of theft, this is costing us money, this is a liability, and we will pay for something like this. And so we sat down with the administrators and talked about what are the different. Types of problems you can solve with this and came up with a number of, of different um, concepts. And we started with the concept of just identifying uh, HIPAA violations when employees go into records that they're not supposed to, um, which could potentially lead to data theft or a number of other liabilities for hospital systems. And we started with that model first because one, going into a record not supposed to is kind of the most basic anomaly in this workflow. It's the one that we saw most prevalent um, it was, it was pretty ubiquitous throughout the health system. And two, there's no role-based access controls in healthcare. So in the financial industry or in the intelligence community, you have access to data that you need to access as part of the project you're on, your security clearance or whatever it is. In healthcare as a med student, I could pull up not only any colleague person, patient, friends, significant other than I knew that had been to to the hospital I was at med school, but also any partner organization. So because of how much and how important it is to share health data to improve outcomes and make it easier on patients, we have a really high surface area, threat surface area um, and and um, allowance of risk because of how many people have access to records. And people in healthcare are very benevolent. They want to do the right thing but that doesn't mean there's not people out there who are abusing that access um, or criminals who are taking advantage of that unfettered access employees through um, social engineering and and getting access to health data. So it's it's why healthcare has so much in terms of um, data breaches compared to other industries, not to mention how expensive or how valuable um, information from medical records is. So all of that presented to an opportunity to start a company and so rather than taking a couple years off to work on a research project, uh, we got encouraged to apply to an accelerator. Again, I knew nothing about the entrepreneur world. It's like, whatever, we'll figure this out and we'll see what happens. And I, I, I'll take a break, I'm like a semester off med school and then I'll right. go back.
0: Right. And here I am seven years later. So, and here you are seven uh, years later. So, so, so this sounds very... Organic and in some ways, let's talk about a couple things here. One, you weren't just sitting in a, your room or or an office with 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 a buddy, dreaming up ideas that that might be valuable. You were doing a small project, and that led you putting the puzzle pieces together. You know, back to your old skill sets from from your military time, um, plus your your longstanding interest in this world but you were you, you had the 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 backdrop of one of the the foremost medical um schools and and programs in in the world at Johns Hopkins and it seems like you got I, I don't know if lucky would would be the right word to ascribe to this but you know st- starting a company is 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 very difficult could could you talk a little bit about um you know your your co-founder, your complementary skill sets. And, and maybe like you said, you, you almost stumbled into this accelerator in a way you were going to take a semester off. Um, in college, you'd taken many semesters off, not taken them off, but you, you had to go serve. Um, so, so maybe that wasn't so out of the blue for you, but you were working with someone on a small project and then that became, you know that that started to become a, a a much bigger company. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about those complementary skill sets. Was it just you two in the beginning, and, and how how that next step then evolved with the accelerator and and you know the, those first couple of years of pro tennis.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's two facets to it. One is uh, I, I was really inspired by the story of Sarah Blakely, the founder of um, Spanx. And hearing the story, uh, the, uh, Reid Hoffman did an interview with her on his podcast, um, Masters at Scale. It's a really great story where they talk about she talks about how someone who is looking for success is always has their eyes open. And they're always going to take advantage of those opportunities. Um to be able to um, uh, capture all that, you know, any any kind of really interesting success that, that most people may not recognize or just move on from. Uh, and so being, you know, keeping your eyes peeled for really interesting opportunities and being willing to take a risk. You know, you might have a plan, but to say like, well, I had this plan, but this opportunity popped up and I don't think I'll get another chance at something like this. So I'm going to take advantage of it. I think that's half of it uh, or part of it. But I think the other part um, that we talk about a lot less is the amount of privilege um, that that helps start companies like Pertenis. You know, the fact that I was at a research organization, the fact that I had the opportunity to serve, the fact that, uh, you know, I had a, a access to hospital administrators, like all of those things made it really easy to um, get into the, the healthcare space and, and the healthcare IT space. And so it set it just made that um uh you know right time, right place formula make a lot more sense. And I think I think it's important just to recognize, you know, the amount of privilege that we have and um you know that it's
0: important to take advantage of it as well. And and to talk us through those early days in the accelerator and how Pro Tennis went from a project with you and one of your your classmates to this is going to be what you are doing full-time and initial, how were you going to grow the team at at the beginning? This is back 2014, 15 timeframe.
1: So when most people start a company, I think what they try to think about, and I know this from talking to another, um, being mentored and mentoring a number of of entrepreneurs, uh, learning from people ahead of me and helping people from um, behind me, a lot of people think about when you start a company, how to make it successful. What can I do to make this successful? And at the time, I didn't realize this, but I was thinking about it uh, a much different way. I was thinking about how can this fail? And the reason for that is because I said, oh, I had a plan. I'm, I need to go back to med school. This is just a semester. So like I need to figure out how this fails because I don't want to go back to med school and felt, feel like, oh, there was something there that could have been really successful and I never figured it out. So I was trying to fail fast. I was trying to like tease it apart. And because of that, I think I was able to zero in really quickly on a business model that worked and that was really effective rather than forcing something that didn't work. And I hear a lot of stories about startups that die over a long period of time because they're holding things together, forcing things to happen that, that you know really don't happen organically or you know there's not a market, product market fit, founder market fit, whatever it is. Um and and so I think that that forcing factor really helped me zero in on um, you know, how is this going to be successful? Because I couldn't break it. Every time I found a way that it failed, there'd be some kind of way, well, like, wait a minute, but this this thing compensates or recovers for it. So that was one part of it. Another part of it is asking lots and lots of questions. You know, we didn't write a single line of code for, you know, the first, I'd say six to eight months of starting the company because we wanted to understand what's the market, who's going to buy it, how is it, how are we going to build a team, how does the team scale, how do we get an investment for this, and, and really just start talking to a lot of smart people and asking a lot of uh, critical questions helped us build this platform so that when it was time to actually get going, we were able to really quickly raise uh, a $1.2 million seed round, higher number of data scientists and engineers, really talented individuals to help us build it. And uh, we already had at that point customers then lined up to buy it. So it was it was a lot more faster and effective rather than you know just jumping in, programming a bunch of stuff, showing it to customers and then saying, like, no, 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 this is not what I want, you know, now having nothing to show to investors. And and so I'm I'm grateful that we took that time to really ask a lot of questions before digging in.
0: Right. Right. That's that's that is great to hear about the the way that you ordered things startups are the, the the there's a lot happening no, no matter what so so at least having that that backdrop first must, must have been very helpful so we we've talked about how th- this evolved out of your time at Johns Hopkins a leading healthcare institution globally y- you also were in baltimore maryland which more and more today in 2021, companies are located outside of of core uh, startup vicinities, and and more and more they're distributed or or remote. That said, and obviously, I was was part of a team that that was building in in, in Baltimore as well. But talk about talk about building a tech company in Baltimore, 2014 through. 2017, 18, the, those early first three, four years, were, were there challenges? Were, were, were there overlooked opportunities that other people didn't see? How did that affect your ability to, to hire, to fundraise, to um, land clients in those first uh, those first several years, Nick?
1: So I think any city you start a company is going to have strengths and weaknesses. And I think it's important to understand what those strengths and weaknesses are and, and whether or not they help your company. I've heard of a lot of companies that need to move to start, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, for us, we didn't need to, and in fact, I think Baltimore was ideal for our company. Um, Baltimore is known for its cybersecurity, its life sciences. Um, we were able to recruit really talented individuals from the DOD and three-letter agency contracting space. Uh, when I think about building a really large, um, uh, flexible data architecture using very secure, uh, very information that needs to be Tightly secured. Um, that's that's very valuable, uh, but very complex. I think about you know big data engineers working with government data or working with intelligence data, and that's that's ripe in this area. If I wanted to start um, an iPhone app company or a B two C company, Baltimore may not be the best place um, necessarily. Um, but for us, it was um, uh, a really great talent pool and a really great. Um, bench of academic institutions to, to really launch. And I think ever since I moved here originally in 2002, Baltimore's always been leveling up. I feel like it's always been improving. I think it's becoming more entrepreneurial friendly. And, and personally, one of the things I'm really excited about is not only does, does Baltimore have these great resources, but it's also incredibly diverse. It's, um, Baltimore city is 60% black, but not known for its diversity in tech. And so, there's a lot of initiatives going on in Baltimore right now around building a more inclusive workforce. Um, you know, helping uh, support uh, non-traditional founders and and giving them access to resources. And so, I'm really excited about that and supporting that as a way. Um, you know, I mentioned the amount of privilege that you get to, to start a company and and being able to leverage that success to then be able to help others. Um, uh, that don't have that type of access i think is 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 critical and and what's cool about the baltimore ecosystem
0: is you see a lot of companies investing in that and really trying to support that that's terrific that's terrific and nick current day pro tennis what's what's the size of your team today we've we've lived through 14 15 months of 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 the covid era in in cities and and states and and the country as a whole not, not not some parts of the world but but the country as a whole seems to be starting to 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 come out of it but what's the what's the disposition size of of your team today functions how you're thinking about going back into the office or not um, right now
1: so pre-pandemic we were growing pretty well we had just raised uh, our series c and were able to um Get up to about roughly 70, 80 employees. Uh, we were at about 500 hospitals at the time. Had made a lot of great success. We were working on our second module, our second use case, uh, being able to identify when employees were stealing narcotics from hospital systems. So another anomaly in the workflow. Uh, so we we're in a really good point. And then the pandemic hit. And like every other company in the world, we were looking at like, how is this going to impact us? How is this going to set us back? Uh, fortunately, because we had just raised, we didn't need to fire anyone or do any layoffs um, what, or, or furloughs. Uh, what we were able to do is really reassess our, our model, anticipate no sales, anticipate losing customers because of how significantly hospitals were impacted and and really try to bunker down and, and just weather out the storm. Uh, fortunately, though, we did not lose a single logo we actually grew a number of counts. We actually brought on a lot of new customers. And our value proposition of using AI and automation to make comp, uh, compliance more scalable and efficient actually resonated really well during the pandemic. And so we roughly, um, uh, a- after raising our last round, we roughly doubled in size. We're over um, right around 100 employees at this point and still looking to grow this year um, significantly, especially in, in engineering. and um, uh, data science products development, working on additional modules um, beyond what we've done already. And we're at over a thousand hospitals at this point, mostly uh, large um, integrated delivery networks and academic medical institutions. So a really great bench of um, early adopters and um, you know visionary health systems looking to use technology to make their systems more efficient and, and scalable. Uh, but still trying to to capture that success and still trying to grow. So I mentioned this before the call, we actually were just, um, uh, over the past few months, able to put together a Series D and uh, are excited about using that to continue um, to take advantage of this growth.
0: Congratulations. That's that's terrific to have been able to get um, to, to not have to lay off or, or furlough employees to be ready and, and to buckle down and, and hunker down. But then to be flexible and grow Dur- during during the COVID era is 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 really remarkable. Congratulations on that. Congrats on the the Series D. Was that from similar sources of of capital to your prior rounds? You are in an, an industry where there is a lot of strategic capital, health systems, et cetera, and as well venture and 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 growth capital
1: yeah it um Baltimore is a budding venture capital ecosystem, but uh it it, it doesn't have venture capital forever and we got some early stage funding from the Baltimore ecosystem, but since then we have brought, brought funding into Baltimore from from outside sources, I think it's really important to have investors that really understand your long-term strategy and share that, but also understand your space. And so we've really focused on bringing in healthcare investors that understand healthcare IT. Um, So we're backed by by Kaiser Permanente's venture arm and the venture arm of Fidelity um, F-Prime. We also work with Transformation Capital, which is a fund that was founded by um, the head of healthcare investment out of Sequoia and the head of healthcare investment out of Bain came together and wanted to do specifically health IT-focused portfolio companies. Um, and they've all been really phenomenal. Um, so they were all contributed to our series, uh, Series D and NC. Um, we also really focus on bringing in health system investors because they have great, great investment partners, but also uh, really good um, commercialization partners. Uh, and so we have a number of health systems that have invested with us. Last round, we brought in our Providence Ventures um, out of um, Seattle. And then um, this uh, most recent round, we brought in Memorial Care out of L.A., which is a great health system that's really thinking helping us think about um, additional modules that we can be adding on as, as well as being... Um, continue to be great customers
0: for us. Great. Well, Nick, the, the, this is terrific. Uh, a couple questions as, as we begin to, to to wrap up here. Pro tennis values. I looked these up on your website and I'll rattle them off. Integrity, insight, simplicity, shared consciousness, delight, humility, thoughtfulness. There, there certainly are a couple that will look familiar to military veterans. And, and there's some that are 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 different than that than that um i i look at company values and and often think are these platitudes or or do we do we really live them could could you talk about how you've refined the values of pro tennis over time now that you're 100 employees what what those mean to you and the team day in and day out as you continue to grow your company
1: my co-founder, Robert, and I often joke that, you know, if you look at the industries that we came from, the teams that we were on, uh, the culture at, at Bridgewater versus the culture in special operations, it, it doesn't look like anything uh, like the culture at Portennis. Um Yet, it's still heavily shaped how we think and how we built our team and how we wanted to operate. For us, we knew we wanted to recruit really talented individuals. We were solving novel problems. We had to build technology from scratch, and we had a lot of room for innovation. You know, Our, our vision is that it's this one platform for compliance analytics and that there's lots of different use cases, whether it's the original one I mentioned with HIPAA or, uh, or privacy and security compliance, but also looking at pharmacy compliance and a lot of other aspects of reducing risk for, for organizations and ensuring integrity. So we wanted to make sure that we were recruiting the individuals and building a culture that in, encouraged innovation um, and, and and problem solving. And so to do that, we, we pulled from a lot of things that we knew worked well from our previous experiences, but we also leaned into a lot of best practices around um, uh, around the concepts of empowered execution and shared consciousness, which means as leadership, our responsibility is to, Tell the team what we're trying to accomplish and why, and be really transparent about that, which then allows really bright people to make great decisions in in the direction that the company is moving. And so we know that people are more productive when they're doing what they're passionate about, and they have the ability to uh, execute. And so we wanted to create that kind of culture that just allowed the freedom to operate. Um, and reduce the amount of uh, bureaucratic processes, and, and just focused on speed and and execution overall. Uh, sure. And I think that's that's been really effective for us. I don't know that's effective for every company, but it's been super effective
0: for us, and um, certainly made us uh, uh, build a great culture. In my opinion, terrific. And as we wrap up here, Nick, certainly we we believe that these this podcast miniseries of, of frontline founders should be. Interesting to to many uh, m- many types of people. That said, our, our our core one of our core missions is is really helping military veterans who are considering starting a new business, particularly a tech business, um, to just showing them what a a founder and builder um, has done. In in this case, you, Nick Culbertson, CEO, co founder of Pro Tennis. As as we wrap here, Nick, a, a, any other um anything else you'd like to sh- to share with with that military veteran uh community th- things that w- we've talked about what from your service put you ahead as an entrepreneur uh anything about the the s- some obstacles or things that you had to work better smarter faster harder at um j- just as we wrap any 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 final words for for those veterans who who are, who are listening and, and and thinking about the journey that you've had over the last seven years at Pro Tennis and your broader uh, career trajectory.
1: Yeah, I, I was really fortunate in the military to have some excellent mentors, um, people to help shape how I think, how I, how I attack problems. And as soon as I got out of the military, I started thinking about getting um, you know additional mentors wherever I'm going. When it whether it comes to fundraising, whether it comes to building teams, building product, I think it's so important to seek out people who know more than you to to get that advice and feedback. And then also as you build success and as you find things that work to pass that on. Um, and so I, I really encourage um founders, whether they're veteran or not, to really seek out mentorship, good advice um, from people who have been successful um, before you. But then also look for opportunities to pass it forward. And I think that's especially important when you talk about, um, you know, the opportunity to be successful and the privilege that comes with it, like making sure that you're able to pass that forward and help others. Cause the, the reality is the more successful business that we can start the better off.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, generally everyone's going to be, especially if you're solving an important problem. Right. Well, those are, those are terrific uh, words to, to end on here, Nick. Thank you so much for your time and, we uh, the 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 whole you know frontline front founders community thanks you as well so thanks again Nick well thank you Randy it's been a pleasure.